Yeah, oh, oh, you're getting a book. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and pray anyway. The Lord be with you. Lord, we thank you for this uh, time to continue to look at the Lord's Supper. We thank you for um, this process that, you, that the church has given us with um, catechesis. And we ask that uh, you would enlighten us in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are continuing in with the sacraments today. So page six. Page six. How many sacraments have, has Christ or... Oh, goodness, I've slipped back into my 28 language. Let's try this again. <laughs> it's been a long couple weeks liturgically. Uh, how many sacraments has Christ authorized in his church? Two only, baptism and the Lord's Supper, that are generally necessary to salvation. What do you mean when you speak of a sacrament? I mean an outward and visible sign authorized by Christ of an inward and spiritual grace given unto us, a way and means whereby we both receive the spiritual grace and are also given a pledge to assure us of this receiving. How many parts are there to a sacrament? Two, the outward and visible sign and the inward and spiritual grace. What is the outward and visible sign in baptism? Water in which the person is baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What is the inward and spiritual grace? It is being born again of the Holy Spirit and made a child of God by adoption and grace. That is, it is a dying to sin and a new birth into righteousness. What is required of persons to be baptized? Two things, repentance, which is a turning away from sin, and faith, which is steadfastly believing the promise of God concerning Jesus Christ proclaimed in the gospel and the sacraments. Why are infants baptized when it is clear they cannot consciously engage in repentance and faith? They are baptized on the basis of the promises made on their behalf by their godparents and in anticipation of their sure acceptance of these same promises when they reach maturity. Why was the sacrament of the Lord's Supper ordained by Christ? For the continual remembering of the sacrifice of the death of Christ and the benefits we receive from this sacrifice. What is the outward and visible part of the Lord's Supper? Bread and wine, which the Lord commanded to be received. What is the inward and spiritual part, that which is signified by the outward? The body and blood of Christ, which, we, which are really and truly received by the faithful in the Lord's Supper. What are the benefits received by the faithful by partaking? The strengthening and refreshing of our souls by the body and blood of Christ, even as our bodies are strengthened and refreshed by the bread and wine. What is required of those who come to the Lord's Supper? They are to examine themselves to be sure that they repent of their sins, are steadfastly intending to lead a new life, have a living faith in God's mercy through Christ, thankfully remember his death, and are loving and charitable to everyone. Are there other sacraments? Other rites and institutions commonly called sacraments include confirmation, absolution, ordination, marriage, and anointing of the sick. These are sometimes called the sacraments of the church. How do these differ from the sacraments of the gospel? They are not commanded by Christ as necessary for salvation, but arise from the practice of the apostles and the early church, or are states of life blessed by God from creation. God clearly uses them as means of grace. 
Okay, so we were um, working on the Lord's Supper last week. We were looking at some of the stuff in the, in the um, articles and in the uh, liturgy as a way to illustrate what we were um, reading regarding the uh, inward and spiritual grace, the outward and visible part, the continual remembering of the sacrifice and all that other sort of thing. Um, so um, uh, in, the, in the prayer book, and I guess I probably should have had you all pass, okay, would you pass out a few of these? Um, because we will want to use some of the text from the prayer book here. Um, so we, we were looking last week at Article 28 about the Lord's Supper. We talked about um, how our articles of religion really put aside two, two extremes when it comes to Eucharistic theology. On the one hand, they, um, they, they do condemn um, kind of a mere memorialism, which is something that you do get more in Baptistic circles, a lot of uh, general kind of generic evangelicalism in our country is also that way. Um, that was not the position of any of the church fathers. Uh, so that is, that is condemned because we do see something more going on than just a mere memorial. And for, for um, an illustration of that, we, we do have in 1 Corinthians when St. Paul says that folks that are eating and drinking unworthily, some of them are dying. And if it's just a mere memorial, then that's not going to have those consequences to you. <laughs> so that is, that, is, um, that is booted out. And on the other side, we do have the Roman Catholic uh, doctrine of transubstantiation is also repudiated as being against the whole concept of sacraments. Because in the way all that philosophy goes, you no longer have bread and wine, and it's really, 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 really just the body and blood. It might look like bread and wine, but it's not bread and wine anymore on a, on a substantial and spiritual and anything that matters level. Um, but that's not the way sacrament works, because we have an outward and visible sign and an inward and spiritual grace. And if you don't have an outward and visible sign anymore, how can you have a sacrament? So that's why the article, this is on page 608, um, now that you all, all have your prayer books, it, it says that transubstantiation overthroweth the nature of a sacrament and hath given occasion to many superstitions. So we talked about that last week. Um, I want to look at uh, Article 29 um, here. Um, so that's on the top of page 609. It's titled, Of the Wicked Which Eat Not the Body of Christ in the Use of the Lord's Supper. The wicked and such as, as be void of a lively faith, although they do carnally and visibly press with their teeth, as St. Augustine, Augustine saith, the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, yet in no wise are they partakers of Christ, but rather to their condemnation do eat and drink the sign or sacrament of so great a thing. So what's going on here is um, this idea that partaking of Christ is the benefit of the sacraments, the inward and spiritual grace. And, um, and this does go back to uh, some of Augustine's ideas that you can partake of the sign, but rather than get the grace, you're going to be getting something else if you're partaking of the sign unworthily. So um, what, what we're saying here is that they're, they are um, eating, that rather they're, to, to their condemnation, they eat and drink the sign of such a great thing. So rather than partaking in Christ, rather than getting the benefits of Christ's body and blood, that refreshing of our souls, um, even as our bodies are strengthened and refreshed by the bread and wine, rather than that, they are eating and drinking condemnation. And that also goes back to what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians um, regarding eating and drinking unworthily. Now you will find oftentimes, uh, and this, this is a particularly... 
um, reformed wor wording of this. This is the kind of thing that you do get from Calvin and then the folks in the reformed world that really expound on it afterwards. Uh, you will find that the Lutherans take exception to this description and they will say, well, um, if you're partaking of the sacrament, you're partaking of Christ. You might not get the benefit, but you're still getting Christ. You're just getting Christ to your condemnation rather than to your, than to your benefit. And um, I think what we really have going on there is a certain amount of talking past each other. And it boils down, um, and this is really getting beyond what we need for catechesis, but, but it really boils down to two different theories of Christ's presence in the sacrament that happened um, at the time of the Reformation. The Lutheran idea is that Christ is present because when his humanity was joined to the divinity, the divinity communicated a bunch of the... the, the um, attributes of divinity to his humanity, which includes omnipresence. So Christ can be everywhere physically in his humanity, and that's what we're getting in the sacrament, which is a little weird because we're saying, wait a minute, but, but the sign is the bread and wine, right? <laughs> so, but that's, that's their understanding, is that, Christ's, that Christ is, uh, his humanity is omnipresent just like his divinity. And I think the big problem with that is we don't actually see a human being there, you know? I mean, that, that's why the Reformed position, on the other hand, is that Christ in his humanity is, is in heaven, because that's what the ascension means. And, um, but, we, but we, he does make himself present sacramentally and spiritually uh, through the mediating work of the Holy Spirit. So we can definitely say Jesus is with us, even if his his human body that he always has since, since the incarnation is physically before the Father in heaven. Um, the, and the problem with that is how can you talk about anything being physically present in heaven? <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're talking about stuff that we really don't have straight up answers for on either side. And, and what ends up happening is that on both of these sides, um, they would be de-churching a lot of um, people from the early church, because these were not ideas that, you know, that they would have been dealing with, and some of the way that some of the fathers would have expressed things would have been repugnant either to the Reformed or to the Lutheran view. Our article, while it certainly leans toward that Reformed view, it's intentionally vague enough to um, satisfy uh, Reformation Christianity in general. And, and that was part of what, um, a big part of what's going on at the time the articles are being written is that you have a strong reformed element in the Church of England, a strong lingering from the early days Lutheran element, and you have a very strong underground Catholic, Roman Catholic, that are not in rebellion against the church, but they're still kind of looking at things in the old way. And um, the, the way that Queen Elizabeth basically dealt with things and, and her, her folks, because th this was published during her time um, in the specific wording, was if they can assent to what's written here and worship by the way that what's written here, we're going to let all that stuff slide. <laughs> so ra rather than um, cause some of the problems that had happened in mainland Europe. Um, and what, it, what ends up happening, this is such a rabbit trail, I'm so sorry. What ends up happening is that the, the Pope at the time then tells Roman Catholics that she's a, an illegitimate ruler because of not being Catholic and therefore basically declares open season on her. 
and 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 so you do have Jesuit plots for her assassination and stuff like that. And that's just kind of the political. I mean, that's 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 a big part of the political and and religious political climate of the day. Um, and so you do end up seeing Elizabeth cracking down on on Roman Catholics, especially especially clergy and 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 monks and missionaries because it became a, a threat to her life and to her throne. But anyway, the point being that um, what we do want to say here is that uh, those that, that do come without a living faith to the Lord's Supper are eating and drinking condemnation rather than partaking of the benefits of Christ's body and blood. Um, that's, a, that's a very scary thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely true. So, um, baptism is as the rite of initiation into the church is going to be a lot more. That that kind of generous assumption goes into baptism a lot more. We are going to assume that there is that there is faith present, and if it and, or that it will be activated at the Lord's Supper. The reason the reason why we do have wording like this, as well as what we do have in our exhortations whether it's that short one that just says, um, you who do come to this table, you know, be in faith and charity with your neighbor, or some of those longer ones that we read only a few times in a year. Um, those are supposed to be words of warning to anybody that is present that they would examine themselves. And, and okay, do I have a living faith? How do I know I have a living faith? Well, um, am I in love and charity with my neighbor? And am I in love and charity with God? Or, and what ends up happening, just kind of on a pastoral level, is almost every church, there's likely going to be somebody there, people there that are baptized, but really not regenerate. They, they, have, not, they have not come in faith. They, they, have, they are not coming to the table in faith. And the pastor's duty is to, to, to use the law and the gospel, both in the preaching and in the liturgy, to exhort um, these folks so that they might come come worthily, um, or be woken up enough to say, "Okay, I need to I need to refrain from the Lord's Supper till I do some business with the Lord." Um, and that's also why historically we have, and all Christians did this until the 20th century. Um, refrained from allowing folks to come to the table until until they were confirmed. Um, part of that was they wanted to ensure that everybody was that was coming to the table had been properly catechized. Uh, part of the reason why that went away is there was this fear of overly fencing the table that we are keeping people away from the table who have a right biblically to be there. You know, baptized Christians or they're baptized Christians. And so is it, you know, for, for, for polity issues, is it, is it okay to, to fence the table? Um, and to be perfectly honest, I, I'm, I'm kind of of two minds on that. You know, I, I think the ideal would be um, that everybody that comes to the Lord's table has been catechized and is confirmed. 
Um, but, but at the same time, um, we, especially here in, in, in our context, we, we do have, um, you're going to find people from other denominations who, who do have those, those, those basic issues of the faith and it's wrong to keep them from the table. Because that's what cate catechesis is supposed to be, the basic issues of the faith. We're certainly digging much deeper over the last 20 weeks than, we, than, than, than is absolutely strict for catechesis. Because really, according to our baptismal rites, the bare minimum for confirmation is, okay, do you know the Lord's, or do you know the Lord's Prayer? Do you know your Ten Commandments? And uh, do you know the Creed? You know, do you know the basics of what you believe, how to pray, and what you're supposed to do as a Christian? Uh, and so, and the other the other problem that that happened very early on, um, I think this is something that, that was happening prior to the Reformation, but it got worse after the Reformation. Was this idea of keeping children from confirmation until they were like in their in their teens, and a a child. Most children are going to be ready way before that if, if they are being brought up in the faith. And, and so there was, and, and you know, this, this, this also happens with kind of the rise of the Sunday school. Um, you know, once upon a time, there was no such thing as Sunday school. I mean, the way, the way the prayer book expects things to be done, which just has never been done in living memory that I know of, is that, okay, everybody's coming to, to prayer daily. They're coming to communion weekly on the holy days. And on Sunday nights, as part of that prayer, you, you know, you're, you're, you're doing catechesis with the kids. Um, so that by the time they are old enough to know the creed, know the Lord's prayer, know the Ten Commandments, they're ready to be confirmed. And that's, I mean, that's, that's a great ideal, but, you know, it's kind of working it out is real difficult. Um, I'd like to work towards that being more the case. I mean, part of what we're trying to do with the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd is prepare those children from an earlier age. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's, that's part of, I don't know if that answers things or if that's kind of over answers things, probably over answers a little bit. Um, yeah, so, okay. Um, and then one, one more thing in the article is article number 30 of both kinds. The cup of the Lord is not to be denied to the lay people for both parts of the, for both the parts of the Lord's sacrament by Christ's ordinance and commandment ought to be ministered to all Christian men alike. So you, you, you found this, this was um, something that did happen in, in the Middle Ages is there was this fear that the lady would spill it or somehow they would abuse it. And so only the priests drank the, the wine and the bread was only given to the people a few times a year. Um, that, that maintained, that was the norm among Roman Catholics still until Vatican II in the, you know, in the mid 20th century. And there are still some dioceses in North America today where the bishop has not authorized the laity to receive the, the wine. Um, the article points out, hey, Christ told us to do both. <laughs> so um, what, are you, what, what are you doing denying, denying things contrary to what Christ's command was? And the, the theological argument behind um, denying or theoretically denying the cup or, or making the cup not necessary is that the fullness of the sacrament is in either, either element, so 
you know, to if you can only get the bread, that's okay. Well, it was a short, it was a short leap from if you can only get the bread, that's okay, to we will only give you the bread. <laughs> and, I, and I think I think that's the problem. It, it definitely ought to be offered in both kinds. Um, and, and you know, it, it is uh, in all of our history anyway. It's always been 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 bread and wine, not not grape juice. Grape juice isn't something that really pops into until the uh, oh gosh, when was Welsh? Um, Welsh, 19th century, early 19th century, do you remember, Father? Anyway, um, and that's really, really happens in the temperance movement in America. And part of what's going on is you can't keep grape juice, grape juice, for more than a couple days until that process gets invented. And um, so you do find denominations that want to deny wine because they're anti-alcohol. And you, you, you'll, but what you do find is even among kind of teetotalers, in the Anglican world and in the Catholic world, they, they, still, they still drink wine at communion. So. Um, and that's the way it ought to be. That's the way it ought to be. Uh, so, so there we go. Okay, um, let's, let's, let's look at what is required of those to come to the Lord's Supper. Um, they are to examine themselves to be sure that they repent of their sins and are steadfastly intending to lead a new life having a living faith in God's mercy through Christ, thankfully remember his death and are loving and charitable to everyone. So, and, and that's given without qualification. I mean, that's really, to answer what Anita asked earlier, that's really what, what we're saying. If you're going to come to the Lord's table, you must be, you must be repentant. You must be um, repentant from your sins, intending to lead a new life. Have a, a, a lively, living faith in God's mercy through Christ and thankfully remember his death and are at peace with uh, your neighbor and with God. For most Christians, if they're going through this, where they ask themselves, okay, you know, what's been going on in my life that I need to repent of? Um, am I, <laughs> do I have a living faith? The fact that there may be a kind of a nagging doubt about the living faith is proof that you do have a living faith, because you wouldn't have that doubt if you didn't have it. Really where the rubber's going to meet the road for most of us under, under my voice today is that last part. Are you at peace with God and at peace with your neighbor? Is there some stuff that you need to clear? Um, you know, and um, that, that's important. And, and most, most of the time, you know, folks that, are, that don't come to communion because they are examining themselves, that's why. Because the, you, know, you, you do find sometimes people that say, well, I don't feel comfortable coming to communion if I haven't met with my priest and, and, and had private confession. Okay, you know, that's, the problem with that is that um, our public confession is sufficient. And so it's one thing to have that as your spiritual discipline. It's one thing to say, this is good for me to do this. It's another thing to say that, that public absolution isn't good enough. So as long as you're, that's not going private confession, that's fine. But in, in, our, in our formularies, it's really designed for someone that has a troubled conscience and needs to get um, spiritual direction, needs to get um, help from their, from their pastor, rather than this is what you got to do if you're going to be in the right state to come to communion. So that, that's, uh, that's, that's the way that goes. Um, when it, let, let's, I do want to back up one more time and look at our prayer of humble access. We all know the prayer of humble access here because we, we've heard it every week. But uh, this, is, this just kind of drives home the benefits of the faithful by partaking. You'll find that page 82. 
We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. There hit your many and your great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, but thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. So that's, that's another almost confession going on there. That's another acknowledging that, that we um, do need to examine ourselves. We do need to come at peace with our neighbor. And ultimately, this is always a problem for every one of us. But we're going to come, come um, in, in uh, presuming upon, not presuming, but assured. Um, as another liturgy puts it. But here we go. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. So that, that goes to those benefits of strengthening our, our souls, of um, being cleansed, of... Um, partaking of, of, of the body and blood of the Lord. Um, okay, we've got a few minutes. Um, any, any questions and comments on the Lord's Supper as we move forward? If we need to, we can field some questions and comments next week if there's anything that needs to spill over too much before um, uh, capping it off with these, these last two, these last two uh, deals. Pam? Oh, no, mine's very general. Cecily. Okay. Um, I always like notice like you like whenever we do communion, like you finish drinking the wine. Yeah. And, like it's like once it's like commun it's like always communion or whatever. Yeah. But like I, like other churches, like I've never like seen it go that way. Like why is it so important? Okay. Yeah. So um, when we when we do consecrate the bread and wine for the sacrament. Um, at the at the bare minimum, so so you know there is a wide variety of way we look at the sacrament in terms of how Christ is present. But at the bare minimum, every Anglican agrees this is something special that needs to be for for only for this use. It cannot be used for anything else, and um, therefore it ought to either be consumed or or it ought to be reserved to take to the sick, to the shut-ins, and that sort of thing. Because if you remember from last week, we're not supposed to reserve it for the sake of what the, the way the Roman Catholics do with worshiping it and that sort of deal. We should only reserve it if we're going to take it out so that it'll be eaten. That's, it's reserved to be eaten, right? Well, um, it's kind of nasty to reserve wine that's already been, been drunk out of the one cup. So, <laughs> so, so it, ought to be, it ought to be finished off. So that's, that's it. That, that's the way that goes. And classically speaking... Um, the big reason of finishing everything off is so that we would not do what Rome does when, it, when it's reserved. Now, um, there's always been um, certain provision in certain corners of the Anglican world to reserve for taking to the sick and the shut-ins. And we see that in the early church, too, where um, the bishop would do communion, and then he would give communion to, to the deacon, so the deacon could take it out either to the other churches or to the, to the sick or everything, even that Sunday morning. But yeah, that's why we finish it out, because that's what it's there for. It must be drunk at that point. Uh, Jelaine? So is that not tied at all? I always thought it was connected to like the Levitical thing for when they were talking about how they had to do the different sin offerings and burn offerings and all the other stuff. There's like really specific directions to Aaron and his sons that they have to finish off the sack, that they have to finish off or whatever for that three-day purification thing. Yeah. So 